0: Chapter 65 The Whale as a Dish That mortal man should feed upon the creature that feeds his lamp, and like stub, eat him by his own light, as you may say, this seems so outlandish a thing that one must needs go a little into the history and philosophy of it. It is upon record that three centuries ago the tongue of the right whale was esteemed a great delicacy in France, and commanded large prices there. Also, that in Henry Eighth's time, a certain cook of the court obtained a handsome reward for inventing an admirable sauce to be eaten with barbecued porpoises, which, you remember, are a species of whale. Porpoises, indeed, are to this day considered fine eating. The meat is made into balls about the size of billiard balls, and being well-seasoned and spiced might be taken for turtle balls or veal balls. The old monks of Dunfermline were very fond of them. They had a great porpoise grant from the crown. The fact is that among his hunters, at least, the whale would by all hands be considered a noble dish, were there not so much of him. But when you come to sit down before a meat pie, nearly 100 feet long, it takes away your appetite. Only the most unprejudiced of men like Stubb nowadays partake of cooked whales. But the Eskimos are not so fastidious. We all know how they live upon whales and have rare old vintages of prime old train oil. Zogranda, one of their most famous doctors, recommends strips of blubber for infants as being exceedingly juicy and nourishing. And this reminds me that certain Englishmen, who long ago were accidentally left in Greenland by a whaling vessel, that these men actually lived for several months on the moldy scraps of whales which had been left ashore after trying to get out the blubber. Among the Dutch whalemen, these scraps are called fritters, which, indeed, they greatly resemble, being brown and crisp, and smelling something like old Amsterdam housewives' doughnuts or oil cooks when fresh. They have such an eatable look that the most self-denying stranger can hardly keep his hands off. But what further depreciates the whale as a civilized dish is his exceeding richness. He is the great prize ox of the sea, too fat to be delicately good. Look at his hump, which would be as fine eating as the buffalo's, which is esteemed a rare dish, were it not such a solid pyramid of fat. But the spermaceti itself, how bland and creamy that is, like the transparent half-jellied white meat of the coconut in the third month of its growth, yet far too rich to supply a substitute for butter. Nevertheless, many whalemen have a method of absorbing it into some other substance and then partaking of it. In the long, try watches of the night, it is a common thing for the seamen to dip their ship biscuit into the huge oil pots and let them fry there a while. Many a good supper have I thus made. In the case of a small sperm whale, the brains are counted a fine dish. The casket of the skull is broken into with an axe, and the two plump, whitish lobes being withdrawn, precisely resembling two large puddings. They are then mixed with flour, and cooked into a most delectable mess, in flavor somewhat resembling calf's head, which is quite a dish among some epicures. And everyone knows that some young bucks among the epicures, by continually dining upon calves' brains, by and by get to have a little brains of their own, so as to be able to tell a calf's head from their own heads, which indeed requires uncommon discrimination. And that is the reason why a young buck with an intelligent-looking calf's head before him is somehow one of the saddest sights you can see. The head looks a sort of reproachfully at him with an "etou brute expression. It is not, perhaps, entirely because the whale is so excessively unctuous that landsmen seem to regard the eating of him with abhorrence. That appears to result, in some way, from the consideration before mentioned, i.e., that a man should eat a newly murdered thing of the sea and eat it, too, by its own light. But, no doubt, the first man that ever murdered an ox was regarded as a murderer. Perhaps he was hung, and if he had been put on his trial by oxen, he certainly would have been, and he certainly deserved it if any murderer does. Go to the meat market of a Saturday night and see the crowds of live bipeds staring up at the long rows of dead quadrupeds. Does not that sight take a tooth out of the cannibal's jaw? Cannibals? Who is not a cannibal? I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the Fiji that salted down a lean missionary in his cellar against a coming fathom. It will be more tolerable for that provident Fiji, I say, in the day of judgment, than for thee, civilized and enlightened gourmand, who nailest geese to the ground and feasted on their bloated livers in thy pâté de foie gras. But Stubb, he eats the whale by its own light, does he? And that is adding insult to injury, is it? Look at your knife handle there, my civilized and enlightened gourmand, dining off that roast beef. What is that handle made of? "'What but the bones of the brother of the very ox you were eating? "'And what do you pick your teeth with after devouring the fat goose? "'With a feather of the same fowl. "'And with what quill did the secretary of the society "'for the suppression of cruelty to ganders "'formally indict his circulars? "'It is only within the last month or two "'that that society passed a resolution "'to patronize nothing but steel pens.'" Chapter 66 The Shark Massacre When in the southern fishery, a captured sperm whale, after long and weary toil, is brought alongside late at night, it is not, as a general thing at least, customary to proceed at once to the business of cutting him in, for that business is an exceedingly laborious one. It is not very soon completed, and requires all hands to set about it. Therefore, the common usage is to take in all sail, lash the helm a lee, and then send everyone below to his hammock till daylight, with the reservation that, until that time, anchor watches shall be kept. That is, two and two for an hour, each couple, the crew in rotation, shall mount the deck to see that all goes well. But sometimes, especially upon the line in the Pacific, this plan will not answer at all, because such incalculable hosts of sharks gather round the moored carcass, that were he left so for six hours, say, on a stretch, little more than the skeleton would be visible by morning. In most other parts of the ocean, however, where these fish do not so largely abound, their wondrous voracity can be at times considerably diminished, by vigorously stirring them up with sharp whaling spades, a procedure notwithstanding which in some instances only seems to tickle them until still greater activity. But it was not thus in the present case with the Pequod sharks. Though to be sure, any man unaccustomed to such sights, to have looked over her side that night, would have almost thought the whole round sea was one huge cheese, and those sharks, the maggots in it. Nevertheless, upon Stubb setting the anchor watch after his supper was concluded, and when accordingly Queequeg and a foxhole seaman came on deck, no small excitement was created among the sharks, for immediately suspending the cutting stages over the side and lowering three lanterns, so that they cast long gleams of light over the turbid sea, these two mariners, darting their long whaling spades, kept up an incessant murdering of the sharks. By striking the keen steel deep into their skulls, seemingly their only vital part. But in the foamy confusion of their mixed and struggling hosts, the marksmen could not always hit their mark, and this brought about new revelations of the incredible ferocity of the foe. They viciously snapped, not only at each other's disembowelments, but like flexible bows bent round and bit their own, till those entrails seemed swallowed over and over again by the same mouth To be oppositely voided by the gaping wound. Nor was this all. It was unsafe to meddle with the corpses and ghosts of these creatures. A sort of generic or pantheistic vitality seemed to lurk in their very joints and bones after what might be called the individual life had departed. Killed and hoisted on deck for the sake of his skin, one of these sharks almost took poor Queequeg's hand off. "'when he tried to shut down the dead lid of his murderous jaw. "'The wailing spade used for cutting in is made of the very best steel. "'It is about the bigness of a man's spread hand, "'and in general shape corresponds to the garden implement, "'after which it is named. "'Only its sides are perfectly flat, "'and its upper end considerably narrower than the lower. "'This weapon is always kept as sharp as possible.' and when being used is occasionally honed, just like a razor. In its socket, a stiff pole from twenty to thirty feet long is inserted for a handle. Queequeg, no care what God made him shark, said the savage, agonizingly lifting his hand up and down. Whether Fiji God or Nantucket God, but the God that made shark must be one damn Indian. Chapter 67 Cutting in. It was a Saturday night, and such a Sabbath as followed. Ex officio professors of Sabbath-breaking are all whalemen. The ivory Pequod was turned into what seemed a shamble. Every sailor a butcher. He would have thought we were offering up 10,000 red oxen to the sea gods. In the first place, the enormous cutting tackles, among other ponderous things comprising a cluster of blocks, generally painted green and which no single man can possibly lift. This vast bunch of grapes was swayed up to the main top and firmly lashed to the lower masthead, the strongest point anywhere above a ship's deck. The end of the hawser like rope, winding through these intricacies, was then conducted to the windlass, and the huge lower block of the tackles was hung over the whale. To this block, the great blubber-hook, weighing some one hundred pounds, was attached and now, suspended in stages over the side, Starbuck and Stubb, the mates, armed with their long spades, began cutting a hole in the body for the insertion of the hook just above the nearest of the two side fins. This done, a broad semicircular line is cut round the hole, the hook is inserted, and the main body of the crew striking up a wild course now commence, heaving in one dense crowd at the windlass when instantly the entire ship careens over on her side, every bolt in her starts like the nail-heads of an old house in frosty weather. She trembles, quivers, and nods her frightened mastheads to the sky. More and more she leans over to the whale, while every gasping heave of the windlass is answered by a helping heave from the billows, till at last a swift, startling snap is heard, With a great swash, the ship rolls upwards and backwards from the whale, and the triumphant tackle rises into sight, dragging after it the disengaged, semicircular end of the first strip of blubber. Now, as the blubber envelops the whale precisely as the rind does an orange, so is it stripped off from the body precisely as an orange is sometimes stripped off by spiralizing it for the strain, constantly kept up by the windlass, continually keeps the whale rolling over and over in the water, and as the blubber in one strip uniformly peels off along the line called the scarf, simultaneously cut by the spades of starbuck and stub, the mates, and just as fast as it is thus peeled off, and indeed by that very act itself, it is all the time being hoisted higher and higher aloft till its upper end grazes the main top, The men at the windlass then cease heaving, and for a moment or two the prodigious blood-dripping mass sways to and fro, as if let down from the sky. And everyone present must take good heed to dodge it when it swings, else it may box his ears and pitch him headlong overboard. One of the attending harpooners now advances with a long, keen weapon called a boarding sword, and watching his chance he dexterously slices out a considerable hole in the lower part of the swaying mass. Into this hole, the end of a second, alternating great tackle is then hooked so as to retain a hold upon the blubber in order to prepare for what follows. Whereupon this accomplished swordsman, warning all hands to stand off, once more makes a scientific dash at the mass and with a few sidelong, desperate lunging slicings, severs it completely in twain, so that while the short lower part is still fast, the long upper strip, called the blanket piece, swings clear and is all ready for lowering. The heavers forward now resume their song, and while the one tackle is peeling and hoisting a second strip from the whale, the other is slowly slackened away, and down goes the first strip through the main hatchway right beneath into an unfurnished parlor called the blubber room, Into this twilight apartment, sundry, nimble hands keep coiling away at the long blanket piece, as if it were a great live mass of plaited serpents. And thus the work proceeds, the two tackles hoisting and lowering simultaneously, both whale and windless heaving, the heavers singing, and blubber-room gentlemen coiling, the mates scarfing, the ship straining, and all hands swearing occasionally, by way of assuaging the general friction. Chapter 68 The Blanket I have given no small attention to that not unvexed subject, the skin of the whale. I've had controversies about it with experienced whalemen afloat and learned naturalists ashore. My original opinion remains unchanged, but it is only an opinion. The question is, what and where is the skin of the whale? Already you know what his blubber is, That blubber is something of the consistence of firm, close-grained beef, but tougher, more elastic and compact, and ranges from 8 or 10 to 12 and 15 inches in thickness. Now, however preposterous it may at first seem to talk of any creature's skin as being of that sort of consistence and thickness, yet in point of fact these are no arguments against such a presumption, because you cannot raise any other dense, enveloping layer from the whale's body but that same blubber, and the outermost enveloping layer of any animal, if reasonably dense, what can that be but the skin? True, from the unmarred dead body of the whale, you may scrape off with your hand an infinitely thin, transparent substance, somewhat resembling the thinnest shreds of and glass only it is almost as flexible and soft as satin. That is, previous to being dried, when it not only contracts and thickens, but becomes rather hard and brittle. I have several such dried bits, which I use for marks in my whale books. It is transparent, as I have said before, and being laid upon the printed page, I have sometimes pleased myself with fancying it exerted a magnifying influence. At any rate, it is pleasant to read about whales through their own spectacles, as you may say. But what I'm driving at here is this. That same infinitely thin, and glass substance, which, I admit, invests the entire body of the whale, is not so much to be regarded as the skin of the creature, as the skin of the skin, so to speak. For it were simply ridiculous to say that the proper skin of the tremendous whale is thinner and more tender than the skin of a newborn child. But no more of this assuming the blubber to be the skin of the whale, then when this skin, as in the case of a very large sperm whale, will yield the bulk of one hundred barrels of oil, and when it is considered that in quantity, or rather weight, that oil, in its express state, is only three-fourths, and not the entire substance of the coat, some idea may hence be had of the enormousness of that animated mass, a mere part of whose yields such a lake of liquid as that. Reckoning ten barrels to the ton, you have ten tons for the net weight of only three-quarters of the stuff of the whale's skin. In life, the visible surface of the sperm whale is not the least among the many marvels he presents. Almost invariably, it is all over obliquely crossed and recrossed, with numberless straight marks and thick array, something like those in the finest Italian line engravings. But these marks do not seem to be impressed upon the icing-glass substance above mentioned, but seem to be seen through it, as if they were engraved upon the body itself. Nor is this all. In some instances, to the quick-observant eye, those linear marks, as in a veritable engraving, but afford the ground for far other delineations. These are hieroglyphic, that is, if you call those mysterious ciphers on the walls of pyramids hieroglyphics, then that is the proper word to use in the present connection. By my retentive memory of the hieroglyphics upon one sperm whale in particular, I was much struck with a plate representing the old Indian characters chiseled on the famous hieroglyphic palisades on the banks of the upper Mississippi. Like those mystic rocks, too, the mystic-marked whale remains undecipherable. This allusion to the Indian rocks reminds me of another thing. Besides all the other phenomena which the exterior of the sperm whale presents, he not seldom displays the back, and more especially his flanks, effaced in great part of the regular linear appearance, by reason of numerous rude scratches, altogether of an irregular random aspect. I should say that those New England rocks on the seacoast, which Agassiz imagines to bear the marks of violent scraping contact with vast floating icebergs, I should say that those rocks must not a little resemble the sperm whale in this particular. It also seems to me that such scratches in the whale are probably made by hostile contact with other whales, for I have most remarked them in the large, full-grown bulls of the species.' A word or two more considering this matter of the skin or blubber of the whale. It has already been said that it is stripped from him in long pieces, called blanket pieces. Like most sea terms, this one is very happy and significant. For the whale is indeed wrapped in his blubber, as in a real blanket or counterpane. Or still better, an Indian poncho slipped over his head and skirting his extremity. It is by reason of this cozy blanketing of his body that the whale is enabled to keep himself comfortable in all weathers, in all seas, times, and tides. What would become of a Greenland whale, say, in those shuddering icy seas of the north, if unsupplied with this cozy surdote? True, other fish are found exceedingly brisk in those hyperborean waters, but these, be it observed, are your cold-blooded, lungless fish, whose very bellies are refrigerators, creatures that warm themselves under the lee of an iceberg, as a traveler in winter would bask before an inn fire. Whereas, like man, the whale has lungs and warm blood, freezes blood and he dies. How wonderful is it, then, except after explanation, that this great monster, to whom corporal warmth, is as indispensable as it is to man. How wonderful that he should be found at home, "'immersed to his lips for life in those arctic waters, "'where, when seamen fall overboard, "'they are sometimes found, months afterwards, "'perpendicularly frozen into the hearts of fields of ice, "'as a fly is found glued in amber. "'But more surprising is it to know, "'as has been proved by experiment, "'that the blood of a polar whale "'is warmer than that of a Borneo man in summer.' It does seem to me that herein we see the rare virtue of a strong individual vitality, and the rare virtue of thick walls, and the rare virtue of interior spaciousness. O man, admire and model thyself after the whale. Do thou, too, remain warm among ice. Do thou, too, live in this world without being of it. Be cool at the equator, keep thy blood fluid at the pole. Like the great dome of St. Peter's, and like the great whale, retain, O oh man, in all seasons a temperature of thine own. But how easy and how hopeless to teach these fine things. Of erections, how few are doomed like St. Peter's. Of creatures, how few vast is the whale. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.